Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is our text, verses 3 and 4. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, I'll start here. Heretics are impatient. Heretics are very impatient. Uh, Usually heretics claim some special revelation to quickly answer questions that God has left to the church for slow study. Arius, we could say, was impatient to understand the Incarnation and the Trinity, so he taught that there was a time when Jesus was not, that he was a created being. And so by necessity, he and the, or the Father and the Son are not of the same essence. They are not homoousios, same substance as the Nicene Creed as proclaimed as orthodoxy since the 4th century. Rather, they, Arius said they were homoousios, not homoousios, right? Of similar substance, but different. So Arius, he was impatient with a, with a patient approach to Trinitarian theology. Pelagius was impatient with questions of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Marcion was impatient about what he understood to be contradictions between this God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. So often in the history of the church, there have been those whose pneumatology, right, their doctrine of the Holy Spirit has changed so that they can quickly answer theological controversies with a new dose of infallible information. A heretic like Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, claim such special revelation. And so throw off history. Throw off orthodoxy, throw off the Bible in biblical doctrine in order to um, in order to enshrine there something new. The church is and will always be, uh, as it says in the hymn, by schisms rent asunder, 
asunder and heresies distressed. And knowing this, the church must be prepared to study the good deposit, right? To study the Word of God as our only source of answers, our only source of infallible and perfect inspired answers. Uh, Harold O.J. Brown in his book Heresies writes this, From the second generation on, Christians and those to whom they witnessed no longer encountered Jesus as a man concerning whom they began to make greater and greater claims, but as a figure of compelling majesty and mystery with whom they sought to establish a personal relationship based on faith, trust, and therefore understanding. In a sense, the first heretics were the more sophisticated and more intellectual Christians. Their faith immediately sought understanding. They were impatient with the hesitant, gradual attempts of those we now see as orthodox to come to terms with the mystery, intolerant of their greater willingness to concentrate on things like obedience, evangelism, and preparing themselves for martyrdom. So heretics want quick answers. Harold O.J. Brown is saying the heretics were the intellectual ones. The orthodox were those who wanted to obey. Think about that for a minute. Heretics often want quick answers for those questions that God has not made clear in Scripture. On the other hand, there are many heretics today, like evangelical feminists, who do the opposite. They take what is clear and settled and want to revisit the question and add modern intellectual research to old doctrines. So now, um, you know, now that we know more about first century rabbinical teaching, we can finally unlock what Paul meant when he wrote, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Such an unclear statement, isn't it? But the millennia-old understanding of this very clear text of Scripture has somehow been missing the remarkable insights and the special revelations of theologians like Paul Jewett and Gilbert Bilizekian, prophets of God. I'm being sarcastic. Um, But this is only another kind of impatience, isn't it? The first kind of heretic is impatient with where Scripture requires study. And the second kind of heretic is impatient with where Scripture is quite clear, but at odds with our modern sensibilities and our precious, you know, modern characteristics. And so I respect the old kind of heretic much much more than I do the new kind of heretic. Now the church will always be afflicted with the impatient, with heretics who claim divine revelation that goes beyond the word of God. The rallying cry of the Reformation is still the one that must continue to be the rallying cry of, of the church. It should be the rallying cry of every generation of the church. The word of God alone. 
It's the Word of God, the study and submission to it and its teachings that must determine what we believe and what we do. Um, If not, we'll be blown about by every new wind of doctrine and find ourselves more conformed to the world than conformed to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he's leaving town to go to Macedonia, commands Timothy, tells Timothy that part of his work will be combating the prattling and, and spitting and godless speculations of the impatient. Paul tells Timothy to stay there at the church in Ephesus so that he may instruct certain men, more than one, not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So the Apostle Paul is leaving this church in Macedonia, and he has specific men in mind and a specific task for Timothy. He tells Timothy to instruct, and that is such a weak translation of this word. He tells Timothy to command. He tells Timothy to forbid certain men something. He commands Timothy to forbid these men to do something. In other words, I mean, just stop and think about that fact. Paul is telling Timothy that he has to do the hard work of shutting particular men down, of denying them a voice, of silencing those who are unqualified but confidently asserting what is contrary to Scripture. I mean, it's a very negative approach, isn't it? He has to say no, not in a generic way, but to particular men. He's got to go to them and he has to say no. I mean, it's very hard for us postmoderns to do that kind of work, isn't it? Now let me, let me get us all uncomfortable. Reformed men will form study committees on settled questions, boasting of their collegiality while they do it because they don't simply just want to tell certain men no. No. Um, for example, it's, it's easy for us to declare we are opposed to abortion. It's very easy for us to declare that. But it is uh, very difficult then to go down to the clinic and to say no to somebody who is minutes away from killing their child. Face to face. Particular people. Um, We do have a recent example of a church court and the PCA saying no. Uh, Recently, as you know, a study committee was formed in order to figure out just exactly what Paul meant by those clear statements in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about a woman not exercising authority over a man. And so we have to, you know, the study committee was formed so that we might come to understand, you know, to, to contemplate the question whether or not women are the proper subjects of ordination That committee has been meeting and as of this moment will report to General Assembly 
of our denomination in June. Since the following, uh, since then, this following overture has been proposed, and a similar overture may be sent by our presbytery um, after we debate it in April. But this is Overture Three from Westminster Presbytery, who says, and here's the title. Uh, it's a long, very uh, Presbyterian title, um, or pur- puritanical. Um, declare that the 44th General Assembly erred in the formation of an ad interim committee on women, that the General Assembly not receive the report of the ad interim committee on the role of women as not being properly before the court, and dismiss the ad interim committee with apology. Whereas the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America voted to erect a committee to study the role of women in ministry within the denomination, and whereas the proposal to erect the committee did not arise from a lower court of the church but came from the Cooperative Ministries Committee, whereas the PCA's Book of Church Order in setting forth the principles that govern the organization of the General Assembly states that the Assembly's committees are to serve and not to direct any church uh, judicatories. They are not to establish policy, but rather to execute policy established by the General Assembly. Whereas the CMC's proposal anticipates, if not urges, the adoption of changes to our BCO, a pastoral letter to be proposed by the Ad Interim Study Committee and approved by the GA by, be sent to all churches, encouraging them, one, to promote the practice of women in the ministry, two, to appoint women to serve alongside elders and deacons in the pastoral work of the church, and three, hire women on church staff in appropriate ministries. That's already been laid out. That's already been sort of directed. And whereas the proposal to erect a committee seems to be an effort to direct the assembly not to execute policies established by the General Assembly, and whereas the scriptures teaching that women are not, to permit, are not permitted to hold ecclesiastical office has been recognized and stipulated in our Constitution from the beginning of the PCA and const, uh, consistently affirmed in the courts of the church. And it, and it goes on. Okay, it's going through this. Um, uh, whereas neither God nor his word has changed, but the culture's attitude regarding the role of women has changed significantly. Significantly. Whereas Christ, the head of the church, calls the church to reform culture, not conform to it. Whereas efforts to alter our denomination's position and policy on the role of women in office threatens the peace and order of the church. Therefore, be it resolved that Westminster Presbytery expresses to the 45th General Assembly its deep concerns over the manner in which this business was introduced to the General Assembly, the erection of the committee itself, the constituency of the committee, and the directive to draft and send a pastoral letter to the congregation of the PCA. Such conduct is producing considerable unrest in the congregations of our presbytery and is disturbing the peace in our midst that is so valuable to us and necessary for the work of the gospel. Be it further resolved that Westminster Presbytery overtures the 44th General Assembly to acknowledge the errors of the previous General Assembly that the General Assembly not receive the report of the Ad Interim Committee on the role of women as not being properly before the court and dismiss the committee with apology. Now, that's a presbytery coming in and saying, no, what we did in the last assembly was wrong. Now, Woodruff Road in our own presbytery has brought this same overture to us and we may send it on. But, of course, this is too late. The study committee has been formed and has been meeting, 
And this overture was referred to that study committee for decision. Now that they've put six months of their life into studying the issue, they're not going to want to say, eh, we'll disband and we accept your apology. The committee is up and running. The terms have been accepted. Um, This overture is like Timothy allowing the strange doctrines of Ephesus to be debated publicly for a time. Then him sheepishly going and saying to them, you know what, after second, third, fourth thought, nah, no, you can't teach this. This overture does not deal with the men, but only with their teachings as well. Timothy is to go to certain men and tell them they may not teach. That's what this scripture says. That's the command of the Apostle Paul to them. Go to certain men and tell them that they may not teach strange doctrines. We can get so generic, can't we? We can declare things that we hold to be true, but then never, ever discipline a man for holding to those things that are untrue and contrary to Scripture. We could declare from the housetops something is wrong, but it has no effect unless we go to those who are teaching it and tell them, you may not teach this. And we all think that's being gnarly because none of us think about the sheep in the church who will accept strange doctrines to the damnation of their souls. Poor guy, we can't tell him no. It'll hurt his feelings. He's misleading the church of God. The Apostle Paul is not telling Timothy to go and reason with and win those who are undermining the work of the gospel. He is telling Timothy to go and lay down the law. Right? Go to certain men, certain men, can command them that they may not teach. So that is first. Get to these men and say, no, you may not. You may not influence, you may not lead, you may not spread false notions. And everything after that is happily ever after. No, not usually. Right? Not usually. Those who claim to have superior knowledge or special revelation are generally not so happy to have young pastors like Timothy come to them and say, you may not teach strange doctrines. They don't really take to that message. And... And those looking on from the sidelines are not so happy about someone being told no. That happens all the time. It would be like Timothy going into battle thinking that the fire would come from one direction only to find that the greatest danger came from the flanks, perhaps even from those he thought were backing him up. But nonetheless, the task at hand, assigned by God through the pen of the apostle, is for Timothy to go to particular men and tell them to stop teaching. Timothy is not to make a blog post opposing their kind of teaching. He's not to make a blog post opposing the principle. 
right? He is not to declare himself opposed to certain kinds of teaching. He is not to propose a debate with these men. He is not to make it comfortable for them to move into some other place to do their ministry elsewhere. He is to command them not to teach. In other words, he has to deal not just with the teaching, but with the men who hold to those teachings. He has to discipline men and then and only then refute their teaching. He has to say, no, now here's truth. No one who encounters an enemy begins by engaging on the philosophical presuppositions of their worldview. Those who have been legitimately identified as the enemy are first stopped and then convinced of their errors by God's grace. That is not the way Presbyterians oppose unbiblical doctrines these days. Because we're all very precious, and we've been taught never to accept correction. We were not spanked as children. So it's very hard for us to accept correction, And to be told no. So for Timothy, the soldier of the faith, his first task is to stop the assault. Now what is it that they are teaching that needs to be treated as as dangerous, as a leavening agent in the whole body? Our translation says strange doctrines. Um, Literally the Greek here is heterodidascaline. Hetero, heterodox doctrines, right? Different teachings, different doctrines than the doctrine that has been handed on from the apostle who received it from Jesus Christ. The apostles were to go to the nations to baptize and to teach them all that Jesus commanded them, right? That was the good deposit they received, the mysteries that they knew that they were to steward, and they were to make what they had received, not what they made up, and teach it. They were to take what they had received and teach it. Um, And there were men men who were impatient with that. They wanted different and new and strange and made-up doctrines to be taught. Heterodox doctrines, different doctrines. What are these teachings in Ephesus? What are the teachings of those who are impatient with scriptures? Uh, I think we might be unsurprised by them. Uh, It takes a little bit of work to to bring together the the picture that is painted by Paul in these letters of 1 and 2 Timothy. Um, But here's here's how George Knight in his commentary condenses the problems in Ephesus. The false teachers are characterized by an interest in myths and genealogies, concern with the law or a Jewish orientation, an interest um, in antitheses that they identify as knowledge, a tendency toward controversy, argumentation, and speculation, deceptiveness, and a desire to gain materially by means of their teaching. 
gain money by means of their teaching. Also, there's harsh asceticism, including the forbidding of marriage and the forbidding of the eating of meat. A teaching also that was in the church is that the resurrection had already occurred. And so, uh, to, to summarize, we could say that the errors here are very similar to the errors faced by the Apostle Paul and other churches of the time, particularly that in Colossae. There was an element of works tacked onto faith in Jesus Christ. And those works had a particular characteristic. They were Jewish, so smacked of the shadows of the law. They were esoteric also, so myths and speculation and hidden knowledge and mysteries. Right? And so they, they smacked of, of the proto-Gnostic. There wasn't Gnosticism at this point. Um, but, but, you know, special knowledge type of religion. They were also ascetic, so smacked of a religion that thinks righteousness is attainable by the harsh treatment of the body. So Jewish intellectual asceticism. So to further boil down to the essence, these certain men misunderstood the law of God, claimed to have special knowledge about mysteries and the evil of certain physical things. And at the root of it all is this, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's the end of 1 Timothy. That's where Paul comes to when he's getting to the close of this letter. Later in that same chapter, Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So, in a sense, the heterodox, the, the heterodox teaching, the heterodoxy of the false teachers appealed to the rich and likely, therefore, lined the pockets of these false teachers. In other words, follow the money. All of this just comes down to money. How many teachers, how many pastors, how many elders, how many theologians have become heterodox because of the lure of money? Countless. Countless. I mean, do you think those called to teach in the church are influenced by publishing contracts? I mean, biblical doctrine doesn't really sell books, but chattering about some new thing does. Is there any money to be made in in Bible translation? Buckets. Crossway Publishers is making loads of money off the ESV. All that the the publisher requires, you know, is, is gender neutrality. I mean, just that, and give us a new translation. And so... Formerly orthodox teachers begin reasoning, I can use my God-given intellect to make an argument for changing pronouns in Scripture. And they're all paid to do it. 
Do you know there are people who only use the King James because it was the last ecclesiastically commissioned Bible translation rather than by a business out to make money? The false teachers in Ephesus were vain, rich, intellectually curious, argumentative, and always willing to hop on the latest fad. That's the sort of men Timothy is given the task of silencing. They are the kind of men who have a thousand seemingly good arguments, but who lack what is key, the deep fear and tender love of God. That fear and love that embrace in the heart of a Christian. They would paint a picture that godliness consists in adhering to their new thing. And they would have argument after argument after argument in support of that new thing. And Paul and Timothy would counter that and say that godliness rather is to be found in this simply. If we have food and covering with these, we should be content. They want to get fancy about food, and Paul says to them, if we have food and covering, be content. Contentment with what is supplied by God rather than argument after argument about the hidden things and the nooks and crannies of the Bible and the shadows. The simplicity of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but not by itself, gets boring to those who have a taste for the world's wealth and the delicacies of the rich, whether those delicacies are intellectual or religious or physical. So the church faces the same sort of, of adversaries today as Timothy did in the first century, as the apostles did, as the church always has. Now, I want to conclude here. Look at verse 4. These myths and endless genealogies, and and endless endless genealogies, that's just pride of heritage. That's all that's trying to establish is pride of heritage. Some connection to somebody who had uh, done something great so that you could boast being connected to him. Um, Pride of heritage. These myths and endless genealogies have this effect. They give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now this phrase, the administration of God, should just be translated literally. Because the meaning is then clear. Um, Thanks again, rich translators which cause controversy rather than furthering the household law of God, which is by faith. These false teachers and their teachings undermine the order that God has called for in his household, the household law, right? They undermine the order that God has called for in his household, the church, That order is by what? By faith. The household law of God is faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to what he commands. 
Not the commands of the false teachers, not the commandments of men, not the traditions of the Pharisees, not the harsh treatment of body, not anything that goes beyond what is written in God's word. What are our consciences to be bound by? The household law of God, right? The word of God. Our consciences are to be bound by the word of God and the word of God alone. The testimony to us, that is the testimony to us from God Almighty. And so we, you know, may God give us discernment to know what is written and when certain persons need to be opposed because they are going beyond what is written. What the teachings of these men was leading to is this. The household order was being thrown off for some new order. For something else. The household of God was beginning to resemble something other than what God required in his household. It's like replacing the father of a home. It's going to change the character. It's going to change the home entirely. Throw off the God, the father, and that household will change. And these, these men who had this hidden knowledge, who had these... Um, new ideas. Wanted a new father. Because what the old father had written just... It didn't pay well. So Timothy's there to oppose such apostasy. He's there to oppose not just the apostasy. apostasy. He's there to oppose the men who are promoting apostasy. He's there to silence them. He's there to preach in season and out of season. Right? He is there to testify to the household law of God, the distinguishing characteristics and practices of Christ's church. And that is where the rest of the letter falls. What is order? What is God's order for the church? What is God's order for the people of the church? What is God's order for the, for, for the officers of the church? And that's where it stays. And these men from money wanted to throw it off. And Paul says, I'm leaving, but deal with these men. First order of business. He doesn't hardly get done with the salutation before he's telling them, go to certain men, tell them to be quiet. Ah. Oh. He must have trusted Timothy. He did. It was his child in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would shake us loose from our flimsiness. That you would shake us loose from our lack of love when we just flirt with false teaching and, and don't think it's such a big deal. Oh, Father, I pray that we would love your word and love the order that you have wrought and ultimately love submitting to Jesus Christ and that we would be fearful for those who don't and, 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 and vehement against those who would try to mislead your sheep. Father, I pray that, that you would give us the zeal of the Apostle Paul. 
that you would give us the courage that we see through this, this book in Timothy. But give us faith in Jesus. Help us to repent of when our minds wander, when we want the new thing rather than what is written. Give us discernment. Show us where we are sinning in this and grant to us repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.